0: Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy.
1: Thank you for joining us for the ASHP Advocating for Impact podcast, where every episode covers a policy issue impacting the practice of pharmacy. We'll do our best to translate the policy and the politics to help you understand these issues affecting your practice and your profession. My name is Nick Gentile, ASHP's Director of the Political Action Committee in Grassroots. I will be your host on today's episode. Today joining me is Tom Krauss, ASHP's Vice President of Government Relations, and we will be discussing the current state of ASHP's advocacy priorities in Congress. Tom, last month ASHP held their annual policy week And a part of that week was legislative day where participants went up to Capitol Hill to advocate on ASHP's federal priorities. Can you tell us what were the main issues and how the legislative day went?
0: Yeah, it was a a great day. And, And for those who are not familiar, um, this is something that we do annually uh, as part of Policy Week, and it's, it's, it's really impactful and it's a way for ASHP members to be directly involved in, in lobbying Congress. And so there are there are four issues that we emphasized this year. That was ensuring patient access to pharmacist services, in particular, uh, provider status, and, and we can talk more about that. Um, protecting the 340B program. Um, expanding access to medications for opioid use disorder and um, a piece of legislation that would make that easier, and then protecting funding for pharmacy residency programs. Again, we could talk more about that, but as, as some of you may be familiar, we've, we've, there's been a longstanding uh, challenge with, with Medicare covering some of the costs of, of residency programs, and that's been a challenge for some, some residencies, and so we're trying to make sure that Congress is aware of that and, and recruit them
1: to help us uh, engage the agency. You mentioned federal provider status, Tom. Can you update us on that effort? Did we garner more support for our lobbying efforts on Capitol Hill?
0: Absolutely, yeah. So there are two main pieces of legislation at the federal level um, that relate to provider status. One is the Pharmacy and Medically Underserved Areas Enhancement Act. That is the the piece of legislation that ASHP has for a long time supported. And we continue to support that that effort. And then there's a narrower bill that is focused specifically on services that relate to pandemic response. So that's going to be things like vaccination, testing, and initiation of treatment for COVID-19, but also for, for flu and strep. Um, as well as uh, testing for, for RSV. And, and we've approached that with a coalition of, of organizations, uh, including pharmacy organizations. Uh, many of the, the, the pharmacy professional associations are supporting that effort, um, but also lots of other groups. There are um, some medical organizations that support it. There are many patient groups that support it. Rural health organizations uh, and, and those organizations that focus on on improving access to care, uh, either in rural communities or in uh, other medically underserved uh, areas, have been focused on supporting this bill because they see pharmacists as um, as improving access in their communities. So it's been exciting to see that that coalition come together around uh, the bill. As I mentioned, it is narrower than the Pharmacy and Medically Underserved Areas Enhancement Act, which. Which would have provided Medicare reimbursement for, for all, all services that pharmacists are licensed to provide. Um, this bill, the narrower bill, is called the Equity Community Access, Equitable Community Access to Pharmacist Services Act. It's HR 7213. And, uh, that's the bill number in the House of Representatives. And in addition to the services that I mentioned, so that kind of vaccination, testing, and treatment for those, those uh, couple infectious diseases that I mentioned. It also provides some flexibility for the secretary of HHS to recognize pharmacists in the context of a a public health emergency and say, basically, there is a need for services. The secretary identifies that pharmacists are well-positioned to provide some of those services, and then it gives the secretary the authority to to have Medicare reimbursed pharmacists for those services. So uh, this is a sort of pragmatic approach to uh, advancing pharmacist provider status is is not the whole of what we would like to see, um, but it's a sort of more focused effort, you know, specific and relevant to the um, the current public health emergency and the sort of the the coming um, flu season. Uh, And we try to kind of narrow that with the hopes that um, we can get Congress to do something a little narrower, a little less expensive, uh, as they're trying to figure out how they pay for leg- legislation. So, so that's what the bill does and kind of why we are supporting it. As I mentioned, we continue to support broader provider status efforts as well. As far as support, I mentioned the the, the broad set of organizations that are supporting the bill. At this point, there are uh, over 200 organizations that have expressed um, support for the bill, which is which is really exciting. And I'm glad to see that it extends well beyond the pharmacy community. As far as uh, congressional support, what we've seen is a significant number of co-sponsors join in the House of Representatives. And in fact, there are several that have joined as a result of our, uh, our legislative days. So that's really exciting. And I think it shows kind of the direct uh, impact of our members having a chance to engage with their, their own representatives. Um, and their staff. So it's. I think that was really impactful. Um, excited to see the continued effort uh, on this piece of legislation. And I think it's, as I mentioned, kind of, it's great for con- members of Congress and their staff to hear directly from pharmacists about the, the role that they are playing, particularly in the context of the, the public health emergency, because really the role and the visibility of pharmacists has been significantly elevated in the eyes of um, in the eyes of policymakers as a result of COVID-19. And so, you know, helping the policymakers understand what we can do, understand the barriers to, to patient care because of the lack of Medicare reimbursement, I think those things kind of all come together and, and that's, the, that, that's the reason we're kind of excited about
1: this uh, current piece of legislation. So, are legislators supportive of the Protect 340B Act and will they ask HHS to take action against manufacturers who don't provide discounted medications to safety net hospitals?
0: Yeah, so uh, as, I, as, as I mentioned, the three, protecting the 340B program was one of our main goals. And this, this, this is an ongoing um, prior, advocacy priority for ASHP. During our meetings with members of Congress, uh, we, we focused on this Protect 340B Act and HRSA, which is a piece, a part of HHS having authority to, to take action against man, uh, manufacturers for restricting access to, uh, to, to drugs for the 340B program or, or refusing to, to provide drugs at, at, at the, the discount that is required by the 340B program. There is bipartisan support for the Protect 340B Act, and what that legislation would do is it it prohibits um, discriminatory policies against 340B providers by PBMs and health plans. And in fact, this is something that ASHP is also pushing at the state level. We've developed model legislation that um, would allow individual states to advance a similar policy where they can where they can say, you know what, in our state, we are not going to let an insurer look around at the providers in our community and say, I see that this is a 340B covered entity. Um, we're going to pro- prohibit the, the payers from reimbursing that 340B covered entity at a lower level. And, and the reason to do that is the 340B program obviously exists Precisely because Congress wanted to make sure that there was a mechanism to provide additional resources to those 340B covered entities, whether those are, are, are FQHCs or safety net hospitals. And it was a way for Congress to provide additional resources um, via a, a discounted drug pricing mechanism um, that would allow those those that would allow those entities to then provide uh, you know a greater level of care in their community and support um, support care to to their patients, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity around this this approach. We've we've seen these discriminatory tactics by payers, um, and they've been increasing in the past couple of years. So I think there's going to be increasing attention on on this issue. I'm excited about opportunities to advance this both at the state and federal level. We have seen, as I mentioned. Um, significant interest from Congress in this at the federal level, Um, it is bipartisan. Uh, We're gonna continue to push on this. I think realistically, this is not gonna pass this year but we wanna continue to build support for this. And a lot of these legislative efforts are multi-year efforts. It takes a long time to educate members of Congress. They have to understand why it's relevant to their particular state. And so I would just say, yes, there is bipartisan interest in this. Yes, members of Congress, I think, have a, a sincere interest in addressing this challenge. And also, uh, if you are in a state that does not ha- have its own protections against payers discriminating against 340B covered entities, take a look at the ASHP website. There is There are tools there focused on this issue and that would allow you uh, to raise this issue in your own state's legislature um, and pass protective legislation in your state. So, we're making progress on the federal level, but I would encourage you to look at state opportunities as well. The other thing that, that we focused on with members of Congress is just continuing to have them understand what's going on in the marketplace, understand the actions that manufacturers are taking to restrict access to, to drug or uh, discounts and make sure that they, that those members of Congress are continuing to voice support for the 340B program and um, in, in encouraging HRSA the component of HHS that has jurisdiction over the program to take enforcement action when they see manufacturers undertaking those, um, those abusive
1: behaviors. So I know the House has passed the MAT Act and we are waiting for the Senate to take up the issue. What is the outlook on passage for the MAT Act language before this Congress adjourns in December? So
0: yeah, the, the MAT Act the or the Medi- Mainstreaming Addiction Treatment Act is legislation that is intended to expand access to uh, buprenorphine, And the way that it would do that is by reducing uh, or eliminating rather a federal barrier to prescribing of that medication. Um, what has happened is... is uh, it, Going back about 20 years, the federal government put a limitation on what providers could prescribe buprenorphine and, in fact, put a limitation on the number of patients that any given provider could see. And the intent there was to prevent uh, potential for abuse and, and to make sure that no individual provider is effectively running a pill note. Right. They didn't want people um, dispensing large volumes or ordering large volumes uh, of buprenorphine. What has actually happened, though, in reality is that has been a, a tremendous barrier to patient access. There are many providers that do not um, do the training that is related to the, the x Weaver program. Pharmacists are specifically not included in the program, which means they can't be a provider of these services, even in states where they are licensed to order other controlled substances. So it's, it's been frustrating um, on all accounts. Patients are very frustrated with the situation. Physician groups are very frustrated with the situation. Pharmacist groups that want to be supportive of patient access, uh, you know, whether they want to be in any way prescribing this or even in a state where they're licensed, um, they see that, um, that limitations on access are preventing patients from from successfully managing opioid use disorder. So there was a lot of demand in the provider and patient community to get this solved and remove this sort of antiquated barrier to patient access to medications for, for, for opioid use disorder. This legislation has passed the House of Representatives, which is really exciting. This is something that we have been advocating for for the past couple of years. So I'm really thrilled to see that it has passed the House of Representatives. It is going to come down to the wire at the end of this Congress. So what has to happen is there will be an end of year package of healthcare legislation, and there is a good chance that this could get included in that legislation. It is as many people are aware very challenging to pass bipartisan legislation through Congress right now. Um, but I think there is a very real possibility that we could get this one across the finish line. And that would be great, great for patient access, you know, great for, for providers, um, and, and great for pharmacists that, that want to be uh, supportive of, of patient access. So we're going to continue to push on this. There is a broad coalition, as I mentioned, across patients and provider groups advocating for this. And I think this may be one of the one of the bright spots where we see Congress come together in a bipartisan manner to get something done. I can't guarantee that. You know, we may have to continue this uh, into next year. The challenge is, if this does not get passed this year, then it needs to start over through the legislative process. So, folks may remember from. Uh, You know, their civics, civics, high school civics class, the legislation that gets passed through one house has to pass both houses of Congress. And that has to happen in the same congressional period, you know, a, a given Congress lasts for two years and you have to pass it within that two year period or you have to start to go over again in the next Congress. Um, and so that's what we're up against at the end of, of this year. So that's that's the challenge, but I think there's a good, you know, good chance that we get this across the line, given how broad the support is, both from bipartisan members of Congress and
1: from the provider and patient communities. So Tom, were congressional offices open to sending a letter to CMS clarifying their position regard to residency compliance?
0: Yes um, I think it was really helpful for us to have a broad educational push with members of Congress about this challenge and so for folks who are not familiar what what has happened is the the Medicare program provides support to pharmacy PQY1 residency programs and what happens is based on the, the portion of your patient population that is that is Medicare patients that the program will reimburse some level of costs for residency programs. And they, in, in order to do that, they undergo audits to make sure that the costs that are being reimbursed are appropriately rated related to the residency. The problem that has emerged is that the auditors, which by the way, are not actually part of CMS, they are contracted auditors. Um, they have said, hey, there are, there are requirements for participating in the residency programs. There's a, a requirement that the institution that sponsors the residency maintain, a, maintain control of the residency experience. And that's, that's always been the case and we, we are supportive of that requirement. Um, and that's why there are requirements around you know, how the RPDs and, and, and their role in supervision of the, the resident experience. But what these auditors have done in in recent years is they have said, um, for for programs that um, that are run through a hospital that is part of a broader health system, they're looking at operational elements of the health system and saying, okay, well, because you rely on the health system to function, you are not actually in control of the program, you're relying on the, the health system to control the program, or you're relying on a uh, school of pharmacy to control the program. And, and that's really frustrating. It's, we think it's just fundamentally at odds with what CMS's intent is for the program. And it's sort of just in contrast to the way that, that health systems operate. Uh, so it's been very frustrating. And The kinds of silly things that we've seen auditors raise as, as a reason to claw back funding are things like Using the health systems HR, uh, uh, you know HR tools um, to hire uh, hire employees and pay you know payroll systems to pay employees. Using common training materials across the health system, or allowing residents to participate in in rotations that are offsite of the sponsor hospital but within the health system and which are. Done with the supervision and guidance of the RPD. So, you know, these are things that that are either common to health systems or you know actually enhance the residency experience. Um, but because there is another entity involved, that entity being that the health system itself, as opposed to the individual hospital, um, these auditors have have tried to claw back funding, and that's, as I said, just fundamentally at odds with the way. That's sort of the reality of how how health systems operate. We raised this with members of Congress. We got a lot of uh, supportive responses from members of Congress. We're now working with some of the members that are on committees that have jurisdiction over CMS. They've asked a lot of follow up questions, and we're providing that material. and I'm hopeful that they will help us push CMS to provide some clarifications. And just to be clear, we are not saying that CMS in any way should stop doing audits, they should do audits, it's a totally appropriate, they should, they should protect taxpayer dollars, but they have to give hospitals some really clear guidance on what is allowable uh, when you are a health hospital operating a residency that is part of a, a broader health system and, and just help us understand what we need to do to comply so that we can take the appropriate steps to protect the uh, the residency programs while protecting um, Medicare and the, and the taxpayer dollars. So I'm hopeful that this push from Congress will, will get the agency to, to provide the clarity that we
1: need. And so Tom, for my final question, do you expect these issues will carry over to the new Congress that starts in January?
0: Yeah, so as I mentioned, I think the 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 opioids issue I think is one where there's probably the strongest chance to get something done this year uh, in this Congress. And I'm really hopeful that that will happen. I think the other one where there's a a decent chance is the narrow provider status uh, legislation. I think uh, if if that one does not pass uh, this year, we'll probably have to think about how we modify it um, to be kind of relevant to, to the next Congress. Um, you know, obviously, the Congress in the future may have less of a focus on on COVID nineteen, and so I think we'd have to reconsider how we approach that um, that bill. Um, with regard to 340B, that will absolutely continue to be a, a top priority for us in the coming years, and I think that's going to be continue to be something that that Congress will will focus energy on. The residency funding issue isn't a bill, so it's not. It, it, you know, unlike, uh, as I was mentioning, the, the, the legislation where you have to advance it within one Congress, this issue is just having members of Congress reach out to CMS and ask for clarity on these issues. And so it's not restricted by the end of the year and the turnover in a new Congress. So that one will certainly continue. And I think we'll continue to have um, some positive engagement with, with members of Congress around that issue. Um, You know, both this year and and in the future. Um, So, all in all, um, I'm really uh, excited about the the level of engagement we had from from ASHP members in our legislative day. You know, we met with 110 members of Congress and their staffs, a lot of uh, positive um, responses coming out of that, including the co sponsorships of the provider status legislation, um, you know, this renewed push around opioids legislation in the Senate. Um, and support for these other issues, 340 B and our residency programs. So um, it's really been a a great, uh, great response to the day. And it's really been an exciting um, response to that legislative day and uh, really exciting to be part of that effort with our members uh, working on advocacy together.
1: Well, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Tom Krause for joining us uh, to discuss the current state of our advocacy asks uh, to Congress. Be sure that your voice is heard. As a pharmacist and a constituent, you have tremendous influence at the state and federal level. Visit ASHP.org to learn more about key issues, grassroots efforts, and ways you can get involved in ASHP's advocacy efforts. Thank you and have a great day.
0: Thanks, Nick, and thank you for your role in organizing our legislative day and making it a success. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe,
1: rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.